0: Thank you for listening to the Sermon Podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Man, aren't you glad you floated to church this morning? (laughs) Glad to be here. You look so rested, all of you. You really do. Uh, Except for maybe some of you that went to... uh, uh, women's conference. Did you have, uh, we have some women's conference attendees in here? Yeah. I'm looking around. I see some of the leaders from women's conference in here. And uh, I don't know how many of you are thankful for all the work that has gone into moments like that, but I'll let them fill you in on the actual statistics. I'll just start making stuff up. Uh, I, there was something short of a million women that were there from 400 countries, but it was really uh, really amazing. Um, the reports coming back are, are just really powerful. And so for our women's leaders that uh, are in the room, I, I just thank you so much for the way that you lead. Uh, thank you, women, for caring about putting Scripture and Christ first. What an awesome thing. Amen? Amen. We, uh, we are in a study called Incomparable in the book of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter three with me if you would. Hebrews chapter three. We're going to do the whole chapter this morning and I know because Hebrews has been one of those books where it's super easy to read, not tough at all to understand. We decided we would do more of it this morning. Um, But we find ourselves in another warning passage. We're just three chapters in, five warning passages Uh, in the book of Hebrews that we're going to address. uh, Just three chapters in, already another warning. And I believe that this is an important one in order for us to be able to drink in what the author of Hebrews has for us in the rest of the book. We have to get through this moment. Um, As I was studying for this, I was reminded of a tragic event that happened in 1972. uh, Really well known, you guys have probably all heard about it. Uh, Flight 401, a flight that had taken off from New York, was headed to Miami. Uh, It was the first accident of a wide body plane. So, of these larger planes that they had, uh, the plane actually crash landed in the Florida Florida Everglades. And when they found the black box recording, uh, they began to review what had actually happened in the cockpit. And it was shocking to them, the entire flight crew uh, had been called in to investigate this warning light that was on the dash that did not um, turn on during their routine checks. And so this warning light was there and they could not, they were concerned that it might impact their landing gear. And so they had a guy that was uh, tugging on this light bulb, he could not get it to reset, they called in somebody else to take a look at it. Uh, Another individual to go down underneath and see if the light wasn't registering because uh, stuff in uh, the bottom of the plane was not right. They're all paying attention to this warning light because it had potential to impact them in the future, but in the process, they had forgotten to fly the plane. Tragic. Now there was autopilot that was available, but in the process of turning things on and off, they had accidentally switched that off and the result was loss of life. Why would I enter this morning with this? Because I believe that what we're about to read in Hebrews chapter three mimics this. Some of you came in here today and there are things in the world that are very real concerns. I want you to hear that. There are real concerns in the world And in your mind, you're afraid that the people around you do not have adequate warning systems in place. Their warning lights aren't working, they're not angry enough, they're not overwhelmed enough, they're not concerned enough. You're saying, is this thing even on? And you're forgetting to fly your own personal spiritual plane. You and your family are about to auger it into the ground when God's plan for you is to just stay faithful and fly and let him take care of the systems. He is concerned about us. By the way, this warning passage is written, I'm convinced and I think it's evident from the very beginning, it is written to believers. Not the lost. It is written to believers. Hebrews chapter three is where we find ourselves. Now we are going to be reading 19 verses and I was told when we get past seven or eight verses for some people standing and holding your Bibles or your iPad Uh, gets uncomfortable, here's what I want you to do. I really want you to hear these words and pay attention to them. If you didn't bring a Bible, we'll have it up here on the screen. We have free ones, by the way, when you're walking in. Just uh, make sure that you have a Bible with you. But I want you to see these words and listen to God's heart. So we're going to stay seated thoughtfully. Amen? Amen? This is God's word. It says, Hebrews 3. Notice the opening statement. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters... Written to believers. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the author and high priest of our confession. He was, a faithful one, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold confidence and the hope in which we boast. Therefore, As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me and tried me and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked in anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They've not known my way. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception, for we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. And it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all those who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear they won't enter my rest? If not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Do you believe that's true? Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning, first of all, that you would enable us to see both the concern, but also the promise that's buried in this passage. Help us as we walk through it to be able to see the trail that this author leaves, Um, the vision that we're supposed to have, what we're supposed to be focused on instead of all of the other concerns that can derail us, and the real dire warning. That is laid in front of us, Father. I pray that we would be able to hear that, so that as we discover what it means to be at rest, we will enter into that with joy. Help us to see this. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. Amen. So I'm going to walk through uh, the simple math of unbelief. Okay, it starts at the very beginning here, and it says, "Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in this heaven or this heavenly calling, consider Jesus." Now, we're at church, all right? The answers when you're at church are always simple, right? It's God, Jesus, Bible. That's what you know. That's what we always answer. Who is the one we're supposed to consider today? Jesus, Jesus, right. You got it. Yeah. It's the middle one of those three choices that you have. God, Jesus, Bible. It says, consider Jesus. But is it possible that you've been saying the name of Jesus, listening to the name of Jesus, talking about Jesus, even professing Jesus without actually considering him? He says, my holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, you're headed towards heaven, why don't you start thinking about Jesus? Well, the beginning of that sentence seems to indicate they already have. What do they need to consider? Uh, My wife had uh, bought me a book recently on uh, trying to think like Sherlock Holmes. I think it was to give evidence that I don't. (laughs) But in this, it was a really intriguing opening chapter uh, where the guy is talking about the fact that some of the concerns that Sherlock Holmes had for his world are concerns that we as thoughtful citizens should have about our own lives. And he relays a conversation between Sherlock and Watson. And Watson is looking at him saying, basically, I see the conclusions that you're making. And when you tell me what the conclusion is, you tell me how you got there. It just seems super obvious. This is how he says it. He says, when I hear you give your reasons, Watson remarked, the thing always appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself. Though at each successive instance of your reasoning, I'm baffled until you explain the process. And yet I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. Quite so, Holmes answered. Threw himself down in an armchair and he said, you see, but you don't observe. The distinction is clear. For example, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room. Frequently. Well, how often? Well, maybe hundreds of times, Watson says. Well, then how many steps are there? How many steps? I don't know. Quite so. You have not observed, yet you have seen. That's just my point. Now, there are 17 steps because I have both seen them and observed them. He goes on to make his point, but here is a thought. Is it possible that you've been talking about Jesus and interacting with folks who love Jesus, but you have not observed the impact of following Jesus closely? The author says, I want you to observe Christ once again. Look at him in all of his beauty. What has he really done in your life? Are you constantly giving thanks for the way that God has guided your life, taken care of you, shepherded you? The things that are in your life that are a blessing that only the spirit of God and the word of God can do in the child of God. And you have all those things because of Jesus. What has he done in your life that overwhelms you, that fills you up? He says, start by considering Jesus, why? Because Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Moses. Uh, Some people have struggled with the first six verses in Hebrews chapter three, they feel like they're disjointed and not really a part of his argument later on, but I would encourage you on your own to read Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, Moses himself lumps this in with the uh, moment at Meribah in the rebellion. But remember, Moses was told to go speak to the rock. God told him to speak to it. Moses comes out and he's angry because these uh, irritable people that he is called to lead are constantly creating all of this agitation and stir. And instead of speaking to the rock, he says a famous phrase, do we need to set you free again? Do we need to save you again? Well, who's the we? And he strikes the rock and God says this, Abundant water poured forth, the the community and their livestock drank, but the Lord, verse 12, said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not, listen to these words, trust me, or literally, because you did not believe me. To demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. Now in Numbers chapter 14, Israel had already rejected plan A. They didn't go into the land and God says, you We'll die in the wilderness, you'll still be my kids. You'll die in the wilderness and I'll bring your children in. But the implication was that Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb would be able to join them. No, because of this moment, Moses would not enter the land. It was a lack of faith. Moses was irritated by the faithlessness of the people. Jesus is greater than Moses. He seeks to save sinners. Moses was confused about his importance. Jesus is not confused about his importance. He is the king of the universe, the creator of all things. He is worthy of praise. Moses could not deliver provisions, protection, or the promised land. Jesus, right now, today, can deliver rest if you will trust him. Do you believe that? It says, consider Jesus. Look at who he really is and what he, he promises. He can deliver rest. Jesus is greater than Moses, but there's another thing we see in Hebrews 3. And that Israel's struggles are less than or equal to ours. That's what that little sign there means. At least that's what I'm told. I read it on Google. (laughs) The author here is highlighting a key moment from Israel's history. It's brought up in Psalm 95, but Psalm 95 is quoting an episode that starts in Numbers chapter 14 and goes until Numbers chapter 20. He is quoting this moment that happened. In fact, even Moses himself puts all those chapters together in Deuteronomy chapter one. He puts all of them together and he says, this all happened and this is why you're not going into the land and I'm not going into the land. The author of Hebrews says that just like their struggle was a lack of belief and it led to rebellion, that's something that you and I will struggle with as well. Two key words that are important here. It says, uh, uh, they did not enter because of unbelief, verse 19 at the very end. Unbelief, just put um, there, if you're making notes on your own, it equals a lack of trust. You do not trust me. You don't believe me. That's the literal words that God used to Moses. You don't trust me. You trust you. And a second simple definition that we need to have as we move forward is rest. When we take a look at rest, uh, in fact, some of the people, even though when you are reading holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, you see all the way through here evidences of salvation, we struggle with the idea that you won't enter into the rest because when we hear rest, we automatically think of harps and sitting on a cloud and that's gonna be heaven, right? When he says rest, it must mean that that's finally heaven. But in here, uh, rest does not equal heaven. It doesn't equal a complete lack of activity. It doesn't equal sleep. Rest here is defining a moment, a day, a season, or location where peaceful settledness is resourced by God. You abide and you trust that God has the resources for today. You are settled because God is in control. You do what he says because he is the master of the ship and he knows what is best. If there's a need, he'll resource it. Do you believe that? Well, if you don't believe that, instead of rest, you'll have anxiety. If you don't believe that, instead of rest, you'll have busyness. A froth of activity. You'll be tired and overwhelmed trying to take care of your life when God has resourced your life. If he says, I've got it, you can trust him. But he says a lack of trust will lead us there. The author's just telling us, we tend to be just like Israel, but the problem is different. Where they were looking at a promised land that somebody was supposed to get them into, Jesus has actually brought the promised land to us. We're sitting in all of this potential. You as a believer don't have to go across the Jordan or into some other location. Rest is available right here in the room, right in whatever space you are at. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing, but it's also a problem. If you're not experiencing rest, it's because you're rejecting God's provision. I want you to notice that all the way through the description of entering into their rest, Israel was still told they would have to do chores. I'm going to give you homes that are not yours. Yes, there's still giants in the land. Yes, there's still wolves in there that you've got to get rid of. The implication was always they were going to have to take care of chores, but they were not going to have to fight those battles on their own. They weren't going to have to provide for themselves. They weren't going to have to protect themselves. They were entering a place where God dwells and where God's protection was divinely orchestrated. They would be settled as they did whatever work they were going to participate in. I want you to think about going on vacation, okay? This would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Anybody love the idea of whitewater rafting, or camping, or going on a giant hike in the Sierras, or playing with your kids on the beach? Is there any of those four activities that doesn't look like work? If you were to put a Fitbit on, and I'm told that you've been encouraged not to, ladies, on your vacation, But here's the thing I would tell you, if you were to, and uh, you compared that to what you were doing at your desk job, nine to five, the chances are you're going to do a lot more work on vacation. So why in the world do you arrive back at this place, in this space, more rested, even though you're doing more things? Why? Because you are enjoying that space. You don't have worries there. You don't have all the work pressures. You don't have all the people dropping in and harming your brain. All right, yes, the kids are still asking for sandwiches at 11, but you're doing it in the wilderness and you love it. All of the stuff, you still have to pack up to go to the beach, you still have to get that kayak up onto the vehicle, but you are loving the experience and the pressures of everyday life are gone. God is offering you right now a life of peace, rest, where you don't have to provision Yes, you might still have a lot of activity to take care of today, but when you are being provisioned by God, you do not have to worry, amen? That's what he's saying. And yet we lack trust that God is in control. What happened? Israel saw a problem. In Numbers 14, they literally come up to the edge of the promised land, and this is what has happened. Ten different plagues that condemned all the gods of Egypt. They were completely in the hands of a God who could deliver. They come through the desert where there are no provisions. They have manna and water, and all of their men, women, and children and livestock are taken care of. Everybody arrives right to the edge of the promised land. They can look across and see that provision, but they say, let's send in some spies to make sure that it's okay. And they send in 12 spies. 10 of them come back and say, man, yeah, it's flowing with milk and honey. There's great big grapes. The homes look ready, but there's some big dudes over there. And instantly, they don't stop, think through it, pray. Instantly, they come up with another plan. Why? There's a problem. Does anybody know there's a problem? Can't you see the problem? There's a big problem. And what do they do? They say, let's get a group of people. We're going back to Egypt. They didn't have a better plan. They just didn't believe God's plan was enough. They didn't have a better plan. They just didn't see the next step of the plan. Now, this morning, uh, I'm just going to encourage you to read Deuteronomy 1:19 through 46. Uh, we'll, we'll skip that. What I want you to see in there is that Moses gets caught up in their same concerns. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, he highlights that they got stirred up, and that stirred up his anger, and both of them were removed from the opportunity to enter the land because they did not trust God. Different ways, same conclusion. Saw a big problem got overwhelmed by it, and instead of resting in God, they chose their own path. Now, there's a reason, I believe, that the author chooses Psalm 95. I want you to listen to how Psalm 95 starts before it gets to the passage quoted in Hebrews. Remember, it's indented and bolded. That means the author assumes you understand the context. He already assumes you've heard the rest of the psalm. He's just reading the final steps of it. But it starts like this. Oh, come let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a king above all gods. The depth of the earth are in his hands and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands even formed the dry land. Come let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Isn't that a beautiful psalm? It doesn't stop there. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, the day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation and said, these are a people whose heart goes astray. They don't know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Do you hear what happens there? Wonderful praise, all this. In fact, we sing songs about verses six and seven. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. And then almost, I don't know if you ever heard that sound where it's scratching on the record. He ends... Verses 8 through 11. That's the way to mess up a really good praise song. End with a warning. I think the reason that he's quoting Psalm 95 here, which is a reflection on those earlier passages, is there's also a problem for you and I. Do you want to know what will mess up your stride? What's going to mess up your walk of worship? What's going to mess up the great life that God has planned for you where you can rest and settle in the fact that You can worship him. You should bow down. You can kneel before the Lord, your God, your maker, the one who is in full control. You want to know what will mess that up? Not trusting him. Not trusting him today. We do this for a lot of reasons. I just read uh, an interesting statistic. Um, I kind of like reading things about England. Um, I don't want to live there, but when it rains like this, I feel like I do. 55% of people living in the UK on the island as a whole, 55% of them cannot see the Milky Way. Many of them have never seen the Milky Way. Because of the light pollution on that island, they cannot see into the heavens. Even if they wander out on a street uh, past the edges of London, light pollution makes God's design invisible In fact, uh, light pollution, in a study that they did alongside that revelation, uh, that is excess human originated light, light pollution is linked to disruption in ecosystems, compromised health for individuals, and a loss of aesthetics. You just don't enjoy the world around you as much when false light is lighting things up. It can impact your health, it'll impact the ecosystems around us. Man made light. Can I tell you what I think is happening? We have so many people who are saying they are bright lights. So much man-made light, we don't see God's light. We're not listening to him. We're looking around at all the other people who we're assuming are bright lights and there's so much man-originated light in the world, we don't see the truth of God's light. We are skipping the truth. We're missing the beauty of God's design for little tiny pieces of light that will actually mess with our health mess up our spiritual ecosystems that ruin the aesthetics of our life. Excess of human-originated light. This last week, uh, I know this is, uh, we've grown a little bit. There's a lot of new faces that are in here, so this isn't really family time, but can I just share with you? I don't know if you, if you're aware, um, we're in a political season. (laughs) You are aware. (laughs) I want you to hear me. I, I think if you're a responsible believer, you should vote. It's unreasonable to not vote and then complain. But one of the things that We get hit with all the time up here is if you would just preach politics we would get our heads right is that true can you think of any one political stance i could claim from up here that wouldn't divide the room some of you think you have it it's not true we're like the children of israel I don't believe politics is the answer. I do believe that there are godly people, even in our auditorium, who have been called to that. But here's what I want you to hear. The answer for everything is Jesus. You cannot elect a victor. Christ is the victor. The same week, I have some folks who say, hey, all of this stuff can't fix it. But what are you doing with your money? And they have an opinion about what people should do with their money. In fact, they have strong opinions about every one of your bank accounts and how you should spend your money, what your bank account should look like and how your life should be run. I believe it is irresponsible for you to not listen to what God says about money. If you're living beyond your means and overwhelmed, you will feel the press constantly from bankers and our society, you will be harried by those decisions. But I don't think having your finances in order is going to bring you peace. Physical exercise. I had somebody come in and offer, hey, we're going to help uh, this group of people with physical exercise and tell them how to eat. I think it's reasonable that we should be considerate of our health, isn't it? You've been given a body by God and how you handle those things. That's before you and God. It's a a picture of whether or not you're trusting him. But I do not believe that just having a good exercise program and eating routine is going to give you peace. Do you know how many healthy people I sat next to getting treatment for cancer? Disciplined schedule. Isolation from those people herbalists yeah okay you can have your essential oils I'm telling you that right now but a little oil wasn't going to take care of sin Jesus I have even heard of a group called Christian anarchists they don't think anybody should be in control they just can't pick a leader I'm sorry for the slowdown right here, but this is really on my heart. Do you want to know what's robbing your joy even in this room? It's probably I've listed one of these things and it's got a little bit ticklish, a little too close to home, a little irritating, and I wish he would get off it. But there's so much human light that is not light and you are missing God's grace. Actual light's not getting through. You're irritated with the person on the right and the left of you. You're irritated with people in the room. You're irritated with people outside of the room. You're irritated and you got your little faction of people who agree with you. By the way, God does not condone factions. And we can't settle. They didn't have a plan for how to tackle the giants. You don't need a plan when God is your God, amen? He doesn't write it down and tell you, okay, well, step one, we're gonna go up the hill. Step two, you know, you're gonna sing some songs, and step three, they all fall down. (laughs) He doesn't have to tell you that. He's got a plan. He's gonna be just on time, and he's gonna tell you just exactly how to do it at the right season. But when we don't have the plan that we want in front of us that settles us, we come up with any old thing. And we get angry that other people don't have the same. And in unbelief that God can satisfy, we live anxious lives. Okay, enough of that. I wish this next one was just automatically enough of that and we're going to go on to a smile. But let me just double down on this. Unbelief is greater than or equal to a car wreck. Unbelief is an infection. If you start with unbelief in the room, you right now start through a process of getting irritated. Do you want to know what we tend to do? We tend to take somebody with us. Misery loves, that's right. We want to take somebody with us. I'm irritated and you need to be irritated too. And if not, I'm going to keep talking about it till you're irritated. Then we'll both be irritated. We'll tell somebody else about our irritating discussion. That's how we roll. Unbelief is an infectious disease. He says, watch out brothers and sisters that there won't be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Why does he say watch out? Because that begins to leaven the room. It begins to overtake your conversations. And then everywhere you go, you've already spread the seed of unbelief. You've already struggled with those anxious moments. You've already been overwhelmed. And so where does the discussion pick up the next time? It's self-perpetuating. Next thing you know, all you can talk about are the heavy, overwhelming, negative, bothersome things and not the glory of a God who can settle you right here. Do you know he wants to settle you right here? There's hope today for you. Right now, you can shed all of that false light and be at peace with God. Do you believe it? You ought to share that. Find a way to bring hope into the room, to bring up the reason for your hope. Unbelief is an uh, an infectious disease and believers struggle with unbelief. Look at verse 16 in your own Bibles. It says, For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all that came out of Egypt under Moses? Now why does he emphasize that? Because all of them saw what happened in Egypt. They believed that it was God setting them free. They moved forward in faith following Moses. They went through the desert. They believed, they believed, they believed, they believed. They saw God's provision. They saw his hand. And then said, Ah, this is a bridge too far. Big people, can't do it who heard believers with whom was god angry for 40 years believers who failed to enter god's rest believers how do you know that they were believers read it in your own bible God looks at them as they're getting ready to go into the land in the book of Deuteronomy and he says, for 40 years I took care of you in the desert, your clothing didn't wear out, your shoes didn't wear out, your children were taken care of, the wolves stayed at bay, no enemies were able to attack you, I gave you food, morning and evening, everything that you need was provisioned by me because you are still my people. But you are my people living plan B rather than plan A. I'll take your children in, I'm still gonna be the God that promises and fulfills. I'm your God, but you're living plan B. There's some things that will get you off of plan B. Uh, One person, uh, unknown author said, I'm not anxious. I'm just extremely well educated about all the things that can go catastrophically wrong. Cicero, famous Roman philosopher, statesman, lawyer, Said, no power on earth, if it labors beneath the burden of fear, can possibly be strong enough to survive. A gal by the name of Emily Colas says this recipe for worry take one pound of morbid preoccupation and mix vigorously with one cup of overactive imagination. In a separate bowl, add one part of hypersensitivity to three parts of increased hormone activity. Fold these together and let it stew for hours. You'll have worry. Arthur Summers Roche says, Anxiety is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If it's encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all of the other thoughts are drained. I think that's what we're living in, folks. Folks. Little tiny fears, little things that on their own actually are taken care of. God actually is still in control. He has not let go of this. He hasn't forgotten the timeline. He didn't fall off the throne, and he didn't let go of you. But we see a giant in the land and a concern, and we run to our own answers. And the result is anxiety, fear, a lack of trust in God, and a lack of resources for the day. We live in plan B. The warning... Simple math, remember, equals a command. He is telling you, do this, watch out. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, I just wanna make sure you understand this. Do you actually believe that God knows what he is doing? Do you? I want you to see this cow. This cow has a master, and I'll bet the cow is wondering, does his master know what he is doing? You might wonder, why would you show this on Sunday morning? <laughs> they were doing a study in Botswana, and they have this problem where lions are killing the cattle, and they tried all kinds of things, putting up higher fences, and what they found out is once the lion finds its way in, because it can't get out, it just kills the rest of the cattle while it's sitting there. These lions were coming in, and so they, ha- they hired people to shoot at the lions. They hired different little traps to try and dissuade the lions. They tried to do things around the cattle that would uh, disrupt the thinking of the lion, but it actually disrupted the thinking of the cattle. And so these cattle were dying because lions were coming in and attacking them. But you know what they discovered? Lions will not attack if they think they're being watched. So they started painting eyes on the back end of these cattle and the attacks by lions went down. Is that amazing? A group of studiers, researchers, yes, you probably paid for their degree, <laughs> came up with this plan and it's working. Now I don't know what that cow is thinking when the master comes along and says, hey, I gotta fix. He's probably thinking I need a guy with a rifle, a great big ditch, fire all around me, I need you to have bigger fences. All of those failed. Too expensive. Not user-friendly. This simple thing kept the lions at bay. But it was the master's decision, not the cows. The cows didn't get in a barn and say, hey, I got a great idea. (laughs) Do you believe that God actually is in control? He's probably got an answer that's outside your box check yourself. I just wrote down some questions born out of this passage from different statements that are made within it. Check yourself personally. Do I feel at rest? If you're at rest, it's because of the promises of God. So do I feel at rest and what promises of God keep me there? Secondly, would others describe me as at rest? Be honest. I mean, it's just you in the mirror, okay? There's no need to lie to yourself. Do you feel that others would describe you as a person free from anxiety and at rest? Am I frustrated that others do not see the current crisis as I do? Just put a check by that one, come back. Am I seen as available, approachable, and humble? When I'm not at rest, do I have a friend that can come and speak to me? Say, Hey, what's going on or check those around you. Remember it says, watch out brothers and sisters. There won't be in any one of you. It's actually a, you all you are not only responsible for you, but you're to look to the right and left for agitation, knowing that fear is contagious. Is there a growing sense of agitation in my circle of friends? Is there a factious spirit? And by that, we all have an opinion that's contrary to what other people are saying. And so we get in our little group and we nitpick about that. We make that the center of our thinking. And we have all of the answers as we separate from God's people. Do we tend to grumble about leaders rather than praise and worship God? I don't say that for my benefit. It's literally out of this passage. Do I see unresolved anxiety in those around me? Can add to that and do I have permission to speak to it do I leave gatherings by that with my friends with the people that I spend time with do I leave these gatherings more hopeful or discouraged if you're not leaving encouraged if you're not leaving more hopeful if you're not inspired to follow the Lord more closely you need to speak to that in your group of friends or else the infection will continue God has a plan and he wants to set you free. Do you believe it? A lack of faith will keep you from trusting the Lord, but faith will keep you in his rest and he offers it today. I close with these thoughts. I remember the first time that I understood that sometimes great answers don't come from inside the box. I was told this story in grade school, it stuck with me and has inspired creative thinking ever since. But a a young man was told that he could go and be a part of a physics exam and that he was able to bring in a three by five card. And they said, anything that is on that card you can use at your test and so everybody else spent all of their time uh, worrying and cramming and trying to memorize everything that they couldn't fit on the card and they wrote on both sides of their three by five card got everything that they could in there he didn't sweat it at all he just shows up for his physics exam all the rest of them had their little card he had a white piece of paper three by five he set it on the ground and he put a physics student a doctoral student (laughs) on the card. So he had somebody who's literally a professor of physics stand on the card and help him with the test. Everything that's on the card could help. Out of the box thinking. Can I tell you something? God's answer probably is not going to flow according to your plan. If you could come up with it, it would be your plan, not God's plan. God's going to answer our current crisis. Do you believe that? This isn't gonna catch him off guard. It's not gonna erase the book of Revelation. God hasn't lost control of time. He isn't somehow hurling out into space saying, oh no. We need to be a part. We need to be aware. We need to be active. We need to be yielded. But we need to trust that God is the one with the answers. And he will give you peace, even in a world that is a mess. We're gonna close with a song Come thou fount of every blessing. And uh, Robert Robinson was an actual man, a pastor, who had come to Christ. He had a terrible young adulthood. And he heard the preaching of George Whitefield. In fact, uh, he had just come from a moment where he and a bunch of ruffians had gotten a bunch of wine. They had knocked the tops off of the bottles and they ran by this gypsy woman. And they dumped wine on top of her And they were attacking her with their words. And they said, prophesy something to us. And she looked him dead in the eye and said, this is not who you're supposed to be. This is not where it ends. Someday, you're going to have a different life. Now, I don't know what that gypsy woman was thinking. But she spoke to his heart. He was so troubled by it that the next day, even though everyone else was mocking him, he went to listen to Whitfield preach. And as Whitfield preached, his heart was pierced and he came to Christ. But he still had that little bit of ruffian in him. And even though he was converted and he began to write hymns and he began to even lead in a church, eventually being a part of a church of a thousand people in that day, a shocking number, he began to drift away from the Lord until he had walked away and and he sees this carriage coming one morning as he's no longer walking with the Lord despondent, drunken, depressed, alone. And the carriage stops and, and, and there was a gal that was inside there and she said, are, are you headed to church? And in his heart, he was like, no, do I look like I'm going to church? But he just said, because he wanted to get into the carriage and get closer to town, yeah, I'm going to church. So he jumped in and offered to share the fare. And as they were going, she was reading this poetry. Come thou fount of every blessing. It was the hymn that he had written. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, the God I love. She began to talk about it and extol the virtues of it and say, isn't this just so powerful? And he's weeping and he's saying, please, let's not have this discussion. Let's not keep going. She says, but you've got to see, this is just profound. It has impacted me. And he looks at her and he goes, madam, I am the poor, broken soul who wrote that. I wish I could be where I was at that moment. And she turns to him and she quotes a phrase. She says, you also wrote, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. She said, it's not too late for you to return. This is the God that we have. You can have him today no matter where you're at. And he did return to the Lord. And he did return to that grace. And he experienced peace till the end of his days. Buried in that very place where he was called to lead the Lord. He told everybody of his return. God settled his heart. Brought him back to a place of peace. He was set free. Not because of his plan. But because of God's. And he can do that for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning, that we would uh, be able to trust what you've actually said in your word, that you provide rest. Father, this is a hard warning for us to hear this morning, and we can feel even in our own hearts a little bit of that, yeah, I can see that, but Father, forgive us for that. That area of unbelief, where we want to explain away what your word says and insert some of our own light, Father, help the only light in our heart to be that which is from you. Help our delight to be in Jesus Christ. Help us to trust the death, burial, and resurrection of a real Savior who has answers for today, who will settle our heart and set us free from anxiety and fear. Father, help us to trust And in that, it doesn't mean that we just let go of all things in the world, but we let you guide the decisions and the steps of our feet. Father, we trust you to take care of us. We trust you with today, tomorrow, next week, with our life, our family, with our nation. We trust you. And we ask that you would help us to be citizens who care, but not filled with fear. Father, fill us with a sense of trust. Help us if we have drifted from that to return to you, not anxious, but settled, stable, able to tell the world the reason for our hope. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.